Welcome to Deuterocanons. Welcome to Deuterocanons. Byron is still not home, but with me tonight is the one, the only, Ryan Bailey. Ryan, welcome to Deuterocanons. It's good to be here. Man, it is great to have you. This has been a long time in the making. We have had more conversations about having a podcast than I think most podcasters have actually podcasted. That's accurate. <laughs> and, uh, and about this topic, especially. Well, yeah, about about this topic. So, uh, how about you just uh, take a second, 30,000-foot overview. Who Who is Ryan Bailey for those keeping score at home? I'm a guy. Um, Check. Yeah. So I teach AP English literature. We met through mutual friend Robbie Malcolmson. On a podcast. On a podcast talking about the essentially the philosophy or characterization of Michael Scott in The Office. And you quoted C.S. Lewis – in Chesterton in roughly a five, 10 minute span. Who, who is this guy? <laughs> Those are my two favorite authors. And, uh, by the end of it, I was like, where's this dude been? Where's he been all my life? Like, what's, what's going on? I got to talk to him. So from, from then on, a lot of quoting of Chesterton and Lewis and others. And, uh, and here we are. So I'm, I've, I teach and I teach this book that we're going to be going over today at the end, it's sort of the capstone of a lot of the things that I teach. The, the purpose of the class or how I structure it is by essentially the, the modern project and the modern vision, which ends up making monsters, makes monsters mm. of men. So we uh, read Macbeth first, Frankenstein. We're doing Lord of the Flies earlier now. Uh, Brave New World, 1984, and Abolition of Man. So what what class is this that that you uh that you're teaching uh in which you're teaching these books? It's a uh, AP English literature. Um, so they they don't there are certain principles that we have to teach so that they'll understand the craft of literature. They do not for the most part they don't care as long as there's poetry, short story, drama, and novels. Uh, it's very novel heavy. We uh, kind of scaffold up until they're ready for uh, dramas and novels, but. Um, that's what else what else do they need to know about me anything uh let's see well that, that's that's a good start at least so B bailey and i know each other from teaching and interestingly we, we have a, a whole lot of mutual uh literary interests um let's see what else so the first time that i walked into bailey's classroom i thought man where has this guy been all my life because he, he has on his wall his favorite authors so who are those guys on your wall? Number one, C.S. Lewis. Uh, changed my life. I did not read books until I was in college. I started by reading, I was reading the Bible, and C.S. Lewis's name kept popping up, and being uh, antagonistic, as I usually am, like, I'm not going to read this guy. For a while. But then I was noticing some quotes, and they struck something deep and profound. So I read Mere Christianity, and that was the game changer. Then I read mm -hmm. about everything I could get my hands on. Uh, actually, a dear friend of mine, we're going to try to read through uh, as best we can all of his books this year. It won't, we won't quite make it, but we're going to try to get there. Uh, 
So how many books is that exactly? That's 30, 36. We're not going to, I don't think we're doing all 36, but probably around 30. Um, I'm a slow reader, so I probably won't make it. But Lewis is number one. Number two would be Chesterton. Uh, th- very close thirds, Tolkien. Four, Shakespeare. Uh, I had a stu- former student who said, we were... <laughs> We were reading the Hamlet, and he said, "All of my thoughts are more profound now." Like he he had this sense of like soliloquies. <laughs> he would be thinking these things like that's a I'm doing a soliloquy right now. Yeah, all of them, everything. All, I, I see images, and uh, and that's part of the reason why just the things strike a chord so deep. And fifth, Wendell Berry, which there you go. Yeah, so that that's uh, I agree on four out of five. I'm not to hate on Shakespeare or anything. I think it would be hard for me to come up with a fifth. So I think the order that I would go would be probably Tolkien, Lewis, Barry, Chester. No, Chesterton, then Barry. And yeah, I, I don't even know who I would put in the fifth place. I, I'm actually a little bit embarrassed sometimes when I'm around well-read people. Not that I'm around well-read people very often, but I, I feel like my, my interests are incredibly narrow it's like, like an inch wide and like a mile deep. Yeah, you know, with with these guys, I I try to end up reading just about everything that they wrote. But that's all you, you get an education, a satisfying education just off of those. If you just pick those four, and if you throw Shakespeare in there, my gosh. Yeah, well, you know, when I read Lewis and Tolkien, the references that they make to books that I that I've never read, books that I've never heard of, writers that I've never heard of, you know, just the, to, to like. I like to say that I'm college educated. No, I don't like to say I'm college educated. I admit that I'm college educated. Confession. And, you know, it really meant something at, at, at one point in history, you know, for, for guys like Lewis and Tolkien to have a degree in, you know, letters or, you know, English literature, uh, w- whatever it was. They, they had to actually know, know some things. Yep, and once that, I mean, Lewis wasn't writing until he was in his roughly mid thirties. He did some academic stuff, but he took time before he was writing, <clears throat> as did Saint Paul. So mm-hmm. they acquired this knowledge and this wisdom and he was writing poetry that no one read. You know, he he did that. He was he was he was working on his articulation. Articulated speech. <laughs> and he once he once he got that, developed that, and all of a sudden his faith completely energized his form Mm -hmm. and that enabled him to write things that are still speaking as profoundly as they were then so deuterocanons uh started off as a really as a bible study podcast and uh and byron and i still do quite a bit of of bible study we we recently um have nearly finished up a a a long series that we've done on the fruit of the Mm -hmm. spirit so to what do you think is the validity of talking about these writers in the context of Bible study? Oh, gosh. They, you see throughout the entire Bible this fallen world system that is being hoisted up and celebrated is the thing that defeats God and eventually slays him and will allow us to have a self-created paradise 
which is the very promise of the serpent mm-hmm. that you you don't you really you don't need God. He's just jealous of what you could become on your own without him. And that magnifies, magnifies, magnifies. It ebbs and flows, <laughs> and you see it sometimes more evidently than not. And we forget that the the Bible doesn't stop in a hundred A.D. That there's this tension between, uh, which is magnificent, that it ends with Revelation. There's this tension of the now and not yet throughout, even in the Lord's Prayer. But there's this tension in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, and definitely the apocalypse of this world system. And then it finally swells to this point when it's going to claim the world as its own. The, the devil's not a serpent anymore. He's a dragon, and he's grown, and mm. he's hungrier. Man, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, then you have uh, the world that we're living in, and sometimes you can think that the, the imagery and the reality of what was happening 2,000 years ago, we forget that there are similar things. Like the criticisms against the churches in Revelation were largely – uh, economic because mm-hmm. you had to participate in s- not only the pantheon but worship of Caesar of mm-hmm. the cult of personality you had to participate in that if you were going to participate in making a living making a good living you're going to be a successful business person you had to join these guilds they were essentially various cults so on and so forth you had to well play, and, and to the, play ball. The, the the bacchanalia you know that, that that's one of the reasons that that the uh, that the the non-Jewish uh, citizens of Rome, especially like in, in Asia Minor, would persecute the church was because of their refusal to engage in in the orgies. Right. I mean, Christians. And, and so, so they accused them. Right? right. Exactly. <laughs> that they're so. How is it that they're atheists? It's because they reject the orgiistic gods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because you have to be in the image of. Of uh, Zeus and gosh, what's the god of drunkenness? Uh, Bacchus. Ba- yeah, yeah, yeah. Bacchus. Yeah, yeah. Like you're talking. Okay, and then um, I guess that being said, you see this high point. I mean, unlike this happened, you see the overthrow, <clears throat> slow and steady overthrow of Christendom. You can trace it. You see the seams are starting to come undone. And then by the time you get, by the time, it's all ripe, but by the time you get to the 20th century, the 19th century completely ripped Christendom apart and it became a shell, uh, mm-hmm. what it was in, in Europe especially. And you start very quickly to see it in America. And these thinkers like, um, gosh, going back to Bacon and Descartes, and then yeah, Hume, yeah, the Enlightenment and and this Kant. Hegel especially, and then and then you have Marx, who was a Hegelian, and then uh, Darwin, Freud, Nietzsche, Dewey, Darwin's Darwin's cousin Francis Galton, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, founder of eugenics, T. H. Huxley, yeah, and who you know he so all of these these names, and then you have the people funding these and starting foundations that are always to better the world, mm-hmm. to create a better and more verdant world. Um, so all of this is going on. And, and of course, couched in this context is, as Richard Dawkins said, 
Darwinism allows you to be a an intellectually fulfilled atheist. You do you no longer need any article of faith. You also and at this point redefine faith as being mm-hmm. a feeling opposite of reason. So and, and then Christendom just accepts that, accepts those terms and, and plays ball in that dialectic instead of questioning whether or not that's actually what faith is. Um, yeah, so, so go, going along with the pattern of the world. Exactly, exactly. And so what, what happens is that you get to this point where you have this occultic stuff going on, uh, New Ageism, the, um, uh, gosh, help me out, socialist in, in England in particular. The Fabian Society. Fabian, thank you. <clears throat> um, uh, theosophy. And mm-hmm. all of these, and then Nietzsche's philosophy, which is more of a bare version of what you know, you know Iron Rand was a Nietzschean essentially. It was put in different terms, but she admittedly was about Nietzsche. And actually, what's funny, Anton Lavey, speaking of occultism, Anton Lavey said he didn't get his inspiration from Satan. It was actually from the work of Ayn Rand. Uh, it, oh, it's, serious? Yeah, yeah. Whoa, because you go yeah, back. I, it, I didn't know that. It, and because. Exactly corresponding with with Nietzsche in the same time period is Aleister Crowley, whose yeah. whose mantra and the occult mantra is "Do what thou wilt." Yep, uh, Jay Z's clothing line a few years back. Really, so, yeah, oh man, it's all over the place. Yeah, so so do what thou wilt, and, and then you have so in this context, all these people funding all these things. These, uh, it's this conglomeration. I mean, it actually Yeats is the second coming is is perfect. Even though he was into the occult, he didn't quite apparently, according to I read Chesterton biography. Um, so, so you're you think uh, it was far. So but, William Butler, yeah. William Butler Yeats. Yeah. So the the second coming is you think it's going to be about Christ who's going to deal with this chaos, but no, it's this it's this monster this that comes out of this neo Bethlehem to devour the world mm-hmm. from it and turn everything into a desert. It's essentially it's an antichrist image, and he it's it's in the context of World War One, but he's saying there's something happening <clears throat> in the ethos of the world. Mm-hmm. This. This beyond, he's using all of these the frightening imagery you can to embody it, and, and so in this context, the lone voice crying out in the wilderness is Chesterton, uh, who dabbled in some of those things, but it didn't quite fit. Um, well, or, or early in life, or yeah, oh, definitely, early yeah, in or life. early in life because his, I, I remember his saying that because his family, his immediate family, was into so many, I guess, fringe mm-hmm. sorts of pursuits which I, I don't remember specifically what those were, but the only shocking thing that he could be was orthodox. Right. Like, like orthodoxy was, was the only place left for him to rebel in, in, into. Right. Yeah. And, of course, he was a huge influence on, on Lewis. Yeah. They both, George MacDonald was influence on both of them. And, uh, of course, Tolkien was an enormous influence on Lewis, and then that's reciprocal. So what those those three in particular, there are others in the mix, and, and you know more about the others than, than I do. Um, but those three in particular, they are not only defying the world system, it, it's not just resistance, which, which it is, but their only revolution is harking back to the very thing the world chose to deny and, for, and forget, or the only, the only one the world chose to deny and forget. Um, they are romantics in the greatest sense of the term, that there's something more within the world than the world itself. There's a, a grace and power, which you, you see that in all of their works. Um, you see it nuanced differently, and that's why it's beautiful. It's not just true, it, it, but it, it's good. It's just true, good, and beautiful. And 
so this whole world system, in a time when you played ball, they didn't. They defied it. They gave stories, uh, especially Tolkien, but they gave stories and arguments. In, uh, they gave you a vision of the Christ who overcame and will always overcome, unabashedly, unashamedly did so. And that's why their, their voices still echo because the spirit in, in which they were, uh, these works were crafted still echoes if one's willing to listen. So that, that world system that's always been at play, these are the voices that Tolkien was always faithful. He's the exception of the three. Mm-hmm. Lewis was way more rebellious. He, he got actually started to get into the occult. Uh, oh yeah, when yeah. He, was he in did. College. He was he was a completely lost person. Like, he said he was utterly depraved. Like he was he about he was close to getting into the dark stuff. He he didn't quite, but he was close to it because uh, it was all the rage. If you were a college kid at Oxford, so he saw it. He saw the world. They all saw the world for what it was. And uh, you know, Lewis was even though he he was the expert in his field. And he was rejected professorship because of his Christian beliefs. And uh, so they, but the thing is, who cares? Ultimately, he, he still wrote his books. And there's something about them uh, that we think that things are more chaotic now than they've ever been. I, I don't know that there was a more chaotic time than when they were writing. You had, I mean, you're talking about from Chesterton in the early 1900s through World War II, mm-hmm. and then... I think he, I think he died in 36. Yes. Then, you know, Lewis was starting to write at that time, early, early mid-30s. Yeah. And then, you know... I mean, Lewis certainly Tolkien. picked up the torch of, yeah. of Chesterton. Definitely. And actually, people people attribute the Lord Liar Lunatic to Lewis, but Chesterton said that first, Neverlasting Man. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he sure did. So, anyway, that's that's why I think those, those three in particular have something something to say that needs to be repeated lest we forget so so to get into uh i guess the the meat of of what we're going to be talking about tonight uh so i get made fun of around here for taking everything back to genesis i mean like that's that's a common phrase that i say uh in in lessons and uh preaching like got got to take it back to genesis so we're going to be getting into the abolition of man by by c.s lewis uh, but I, I want to go back to Genesis to to set the stage, and and you brought this up a minute ago. What was Satan trying to accomplish in the garden? About the over the the, the envious pride and uh, about the temptation, about what he's doing in that temptation. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. see. I, I think that Satan's goal all the way back in the garden itself is expressed in Lewis's title, The Abolition of Man. I, I think that Satan, Satan was hopeful that in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, that they would die, and that that would be it, and that he would win. Like, all he had to do was get him to sin, and so, but when that happened, so yes, the, the, there, there was a death, but there was also, uh, despite curse, the, there, there was this, this plan of redemption 
that that was that was revealed um and and that plan of redemption would involve the the seed of the woman you know the the oftentimes in the old testament called the son of man and the the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent would be uh that there would be enmity between them and it would ultimately be the seed of the woman the son of man who would crush the head of the serpent and so i i think that the abolition of man is a helpful template to to understanding really all of the old testament but then at the same time, all of human history. You know, I, whenever I teach this, I say something that is all is controversial and it makes me uncomfortable when I say it. And I hope I explain it well enough to students and explain it well enough now. <laughs> but I say to them, this is going to be the most important book you ever read. And I, I pause and they say, a lot of the students like, the Bible? <laughs> and I remind them... Um, you know, I don't, I don't uh, preach in class, not only because it's allegedly illegal, but I, I try allegedly. To, I, I try to let the let the the words speak for them themselves, whatever we're talking sure. about. And um, I do. I remind them. I said, you know, roughly eighty percent of you who go to church, you're going to reject the Bible. You're like, if you even read it now, you're you're not going to accept it. Why? Um, well. If you would understand what Lewis is saying, <laughs> that would give you a foundation upon so that your your worldview is founded well enough where the, you could receive those scriptures. Because um, if, if you're just given, if you're not a, if you're not immersed within scriptures themselves and say this is the great book I need to know, but yet you're still swimming down the culture wherever it goes. You're going to find out that that culture does not jive. Like you can't swim down two rivers at once. Hmm. And Lewis is directing us to absolute truth. If you don't have that notion, you're automatically primed to reject the scriptures. If you if you are just swimming like a fish in the cultural stream, which all these this like we're talking about this world system then you're eventually going to reject this that that's all there is to it right and, and but but what's so what's so devastating what's so tragic is that is that once objective value is rejected the only thing that's left like what, what, what did lewis say when when you reject when that which is oh shoot how, how does he say it help me out uh like Anyway, whenever you reject objective truth, objective value, all that's left is power, or all that's left is 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 uh, is desire. That that's it. All that's left is I want. Yeah. When all that says I ought vanishes, vanishes, and all that all that, that remains is I want. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the epigraph of the the book is from. Uh, Christmas Carol, uh, a Christmas Carol, not the Christmas Carol. Uh, oh unto, yeah, unto, unto us is born a son. Is what's called. It says uh, this Herod did Herod sorely afraid and grievously bewildered, so he sent the word to slay and slew the little children. Yeah. So it says in the context he's using the purposeful eradication of children. Uh, hmm. 
that again, Herod is this kind of satanic figure, um, right? And to have an, to have a reign over something, a spiteful reign is is what the devil's doing, spitefully reigning over people and trying to get them. Like he's going to usurp creation. Like God's going to has doing one thing, he's not going to let God do it. He's refusing to. So he's going to spoil and corrupt the very mm-hmm. creation. Right. So so if we if we go back to Genesis, well, once they get out of the garden. Uh, and, you know, it gets down the line a little ways, and eventually we get to Noah. And Noah was the only one found perfect in his generations. So it, it's like what Satan was trying to do is he was trying to abolish man by ensuring they're doing everything that he could for no one to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah did. And so then you get a little bit f- further past that, and you, you get to Moses and... uh you know, he, he Satan was trying to kill all of the baby boys to get Moses so that there would be, you know, the, the, the nation of Israel would be utterly, uh, I mean, would, would be genocided, so, so to speak. And so that the, the son of man, that the seed of the woman, the seed of, uh, of Eve wouldn't, wouldn't ever come about. You get the same thing once they get into the land of Canaan. You know, it's that they encounter giants again. It's like, well, why? Well, to cut off Israel, so that so that the Redeemer doesn't come, so the Messiah doesn't come. You get to Herod, and and it's the, it's the it's the same thing. Or even even the all the playbook. It it's the exact same playbook. You know, history doesn't repeat, but but history history rhymes like like the snake keeps circling back to eat its eat its own tail. Yeah, I mean, it also as as Lewis said elsewhere, how. How gloriously different are all? How gloriously uh, and wondrously different are all the saints, and how monotonous and dull are all the sinners, or all the tyrants? <laughs> Is that all the tyrants, right? They're yeah, because yeah, the tyrants, point. tyrants are the, they're all the same person, right? They're all the same. It's this because they're a, a shell. It's almost they're um, some. It's it's the the same a, like an avatar. It is exactly. Yeah. Um. It, you know, it goes also. Uh, we go back to again the sense of possessing whatever God's plan is. You see it in Babel. They're gonna create a ziggurat to contain God. <laughs> they're gonna make their own. So they're make mm-hmm. their own mountain where they can force God to do whatever by this sort of manipulative give and take worship. Um, so you, I mean, you see this all throughout of this trying to be masters of all existence, right? And here Lewis is being in the middle of this at Oxford is in these lectures, apparently to sold out crowds. Apparently there are people mm-hmm. out in the hallways listening to him, <clears throat> uh, is, is going to show what is it that's going on. And it, what's interesting about this, that of all things he chooses to talk about, he's not picking apart a philosopher. He's not taking out an entire movement. He is picking a high school textbook. And showing how all mm-hmm. of these things are implied in a high, so the thing, and that's important because people aren't going to read Nietzsche, right? people aren't going to read Marx, uh, they're not going to know these things by hand. But everyone is going to get the implications of this this worldview, and it's going to be implied in everything, and it's going to be implied in the very thing that's supposed to prevent one from being um, uh, propagandized to uh, with the purpose uh, 
a, you know, education used to be an old bird teaching a young bird how to fly. Right. And what was the other half of that? And and then it became. <clears throat> uh, well, that that that's in the very first yeah. essay. So speaking of which, so. Now we're kind of getting into uh, the meat of the abolition of man. So could could you tell us uh, just real quick, like how long is this book? How how is the book laid out? What's the uh, I don't know. So so what are some basics here? You've already mentioned that it's it's based on a series of lectures that that Lewis gave, and that he he uses as a starting off point this uh, this textbook that he he calls the Green Book, which was a, a, a an actual book that he had that was used in high schools. So, so, so what else can you tell us about just kind of the background of this book? So th- there are two fundamental modes of education and only two. One is that there is value to life. One is that there is not value to life. Hmm. Uh, the problem if you take the latter is that you still have to live <laughs> and you, you, we all act as if there is value. So the question is, what do we do with that seeming, uh, that seemingness? And uh, if we can't determine it ourselves, we must have experts to do that for us hmm. who can structure things in such a way that our lives have um, seeming value, seeming importance, even if they don't have anything certain. So you have to have expertise, uh, conditioners or controllers. He calls them conditioners. Uh, Huxley calls them world controllers. Uh, this, this sums it up. This is the difference here. It, it's, I found that quote. Where the old initiated, the new merely conditions. The old dealt with its pupils as grown birds deal with young birds when they teach them to fly. The new deals with them more as the poultry keeper deals with young birds, making them thus or thus for purposes of which the birds know nothing. Hmm. In a word, the old was a kind of propagation, men transmitting manhood to men. The new is merely propaganda. Uh, So he, he goes through... Three examples, and these are perfectly picked examples of the Green Book and what they're actually doing and what what are they really teaching. And he explains if they were actually good English teachers, they could use these examples to explore something pertinent to the study of literature, to to proper logical thinking, to uh, composition, to articulation. If they were good English teachers, they would use these opportunities to study that. Instead, what they do is debunk meaning and saying, well, they think this thing is meaningful that it's happened, but really it's only a reflection of what they feel. They're not really, their thoughts and their feelings are not actually attached or connected to reality, but it's only a, it's a facade that is connected to reality. It's not really connected uh, all they have is their perception and their feelings about things. That's all that you have. But they have no bearing as to reality, and they have no objective or innate value in themselves. So if you're you're leaving students with the notion, and it makes them sound smart, because you can make this argument to people, and they've never heard it before, and all of a sudden you sound sharp. You sound like you can make an argument that sounds really interesting and philosophical, and uh, extraordinarily pretentious. But um, if you do that to kids, then all of a sudden, slowly but surely, they're going to believe that there's no meaning to anything. There can't be a meaning to anything. So today, truth. Let's use this. Your truth. Your truth and my truth. 
Now, there is some legitimacy to this to this phrase, right? There is an existential reality where every human being does have a unique narrative uh, that's unrepeated and unrepeatable. There is something about the image of God as such a myriad that no human being is going to duplicate that of another human being, and that image is going to be born differently. Even if it was, even if we were completely sinless, every person would be even more different if we were sinless hmm. than uh, than we are. Um, so there is some truth to your truth and my truth, but that truth, uh, the individual's truth, is only valid if there's such thing as the truth. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're you're trying to walk on a world without foundation. Uh, you can't. There's no gravity that holds things together, holds things down. So so people, uh, it sounds as though what they're arguing is that your perception is valid, your opinion is valid, even though your opinion and perception are not connected to the way things really are. It sounds like it empowers the individual, but it actually paralyzes the individual. It does the exact opposite. The individual cannot be connected to reality, cannot be, and therefore there's no meaning um, because you've concluded and your premises are actually suggesting that because there's no connection, there's no value and no meaning. Uh, so it leads, this is ultimately nihilistic. It's absolutely nihilistic, but you don't, you can't let the cat out of the bag and convey and confess that this is nihilism because people will innately reject nihilism. You'll only get a few people who will accept it. Nobody wants to go around and think that life is meaningless. So you have to, you, you have to be a sophist here and twist the language so that it sounds intellectual and progressive and advanced uh, it sounds like it's this new truth leading to a new age uh, of a new utopia when really it's just good old-fashioned nihilism that's been there forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there there are no nihilists in a gunfight. Right. Uh, back to Chesterton and Man right. Alive. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Man Alive, which, man, that, that's su- such a great scene. And I, I know that's that's a little bit off topic, but so the uh, so Abolition of Man... Uh, like we've said, it starts off with looking at a high school level textbook, and one one of the quotes that sticks out to me fr- from that from that first chapter called "Men Without Chests" is um, the disservice that the writers of that book have have done to schoolmasters and to parents who thought that they were getting the work of professional grammarians when in fact they were getting the work of amateur philosophers. Definitely. So, what what's the connection between uh, between that that example and the things that you've been talking about, and uh, and, and the title of that chapter, "Men Without Chests"? So what what what's that about? Do you want to go over, quickly over these examples he used? Yeah, and see, yeah, yeah. Like, what is his argument against them? So he talks about Coleridge's waterfall when uh, Coleridge is with a guy, and the guy says this waterfall waterfall is pretty, and Coleridge disagrees with him and says, "No, this this is sublime. It's not pretty." Waterfall, this isn't pretty. It's sublime. So it, it's something containing a power and a glory and a beauty that's not just, oh, that's nice. So you have to, in other words, what, what Coleridge is saying and what a good English teacher would do would be, how do you properly embody experiences and thoughts and feelings in words? What's the connection between composition, articulation, mm-hmm. and the reality that we're experiencing? Can you disagree with somebody's experience 
and and good grief, every student will say no, and all you have to do is give them a couple of examples. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, they all say no. So he's he's saying so, but but this does this is a legitimate question that these teachers could have raised. How do philosophically, um, how do our experiences like how do we embody them into words and can we disagree with somebody else's perception and experience legitimately disagree and can we say that your experience of this is wrong you're not seeing it properly i seeing correctly, or, mm-hmm. or in this case you're not seeing it deeply enough there's a depth and if you miss that depth you're kind of missing the whole thing so but what's happening instead of discussing that all they say is he thinks he's talking about the waterfall coleridge but really He's just talking about his feelings about the waterfall. Mm-hmm. When you know Lewis shows quickly that this is absurd, it's like if you say um, somebody is detestable, like this is a detestable or, or hateful human being, then really you're not saying that. You're saying I have feelings of hate. Right. Um, yes, I, I think I think he goes so far as to say to say that that is detestable is really to say that I have detestable feelings, which means that I am detestable. Right. <laughs> so if you make any comment about anything, it's a reflect. It, again, it, it's it's this mirror. Everything's a mirror back to yourself, which is exhausting for one thing. Like that's right. awful. Um, but what what happens here is, as Lewis says, what actually happens here when you do this is the kid is so you debunk and deconstruct and disenchant a kid's love of nature, of beauty, and of wonder. Those are gone now. Right, and and it and it conditions him. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't directly teach him, but it gi- it gives the student the impression that all statements w- containing a predicate of mm-hmm. value are meaningless right. such that at some point in the future the student all grown up will take one position over another in an argument or a controversy and have no idea why that's terrifying yeah that is terrifying um. hence men without chests yeah, uh, yeah, you're you're fighting for something that you don't even believe in. It's soulless. That's essentially what he means. There's no soul. There's no heart. It's heart, and not in the sense of the seed of emotion, but in the seed of life. It's mm-hmm. where where the the essence of one's life is, um, or, or the thought of, of of being left simply with hollow desire, like like desire without any understanding of of a particular desire's correspondence to beauty or truth oh let's go back to what you said you you've been doing the fruit of the spirit yeah yeah okay so it's really interesting because typically this triptych of of body mind soul or or feeling mind soul kind of these three parts of the human being uh these sort of intangible transcendental aspects of the human being which correspond to beauty truth and goodness um what's how lewis conveys this is really interesting and unique and and I think it goes way deeper than we usually do with this type of conversation of the, you know, these three aspects. He's saying that there's desire or feeling. It has to be put in its proper place. Uh, and Plato talked about that. And he, he, his view is that the charioteer and the horses, right? The horses are the feeling and the charioteer is reason. Well, there's this other element and, and the heart is, is the seat of virtue for Lewis. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's not just, it's not this platonic form. It's not that, the soul is pure in and of itself, and you just have to let it shine. It's the sense that this is a, this is a, a fragile uh, faculty. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's not even a, a sapling yet. 
it's it's a seed barely sprouted and it could easily die and it has to be trained so the mind and that's that's why education is important the mind you want to get to the point when you teach where your students don't need you and their mind functions in the way that their teachers helped them function so essentially you become the teacher uh, and you don't need your teachers anymore they've gotten you to that point where your mind is well trained uh, and then you can do it all on your own so the the mind so eventually though uh, until that point that's why education is so important because you have to have people to train that mind for you in the same way that they they your your parents will give you a certain diet the parents will give you certain rules so on and so forth the mind has to be trained in the same way as the body so there's the mind as the mind or as our um, people before us, uh, these traditions we pass down on how to live properly, and then eventually we do this to ourselves, hopefully, um, is training the feeling, is training desire. And as this process is going on, it's strengthening the heart, it's strengthening the soul. In other words, it's creating virtue. And, and this very important thing is creating habit. This habit, the habit of virtue, is essentially the soul becoming alive. It's, it is one becoming like Christ, ultimately. And so it's, in other words, it's the fruit of the spirit being actualized within the human being in this cooperative effort of the human being, his teachers, his context, the people around him, the great cloud of witnesses, uh, God himself joining in, not only grace directly, but grace through these other people and these other authors and these other writers and your parents and your friends and your church and all of this working together this virtue is created through this process of training our emotions, saying yes and no to ourselves when it ought to be. And here's the interesting thing. Go back to Genesis. How do we know? Okay. So if we don't know how to properly say yes and no to ourselves and to the world around us, if we are claiming the knowledge of good and evil and of yes and no, how we see fit based on our own desire, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. the tasty deliciousness of being able to say yes and no to whatever we want to do what thou wilt and whatever you want is going to be your God. But the, and if you do that, there's no, there's no, it's a man without chest. There's no virtue. There's no heart. There, there's no fruit of the spirit there. So without that, so Lewis is defending without saying so much that chest that he's referring to is the seat of virtue it's where the image of God is. It's being actualized through all of these different things. So education is aimed at that. And as we've talked about, Justin, I don't know if most people who, I don't want to sound arrogant like we figured it out, but we thought about it, though. We thought about it. I don't know if most people who, who teach say, what are we aiming students toward? What are they, like, what's the vision? Mm -hmm. If that's not it. It's nothing. It's that or nothing. Well, I, I think that there have been some some attempts at that, and um, I, I would say this is going to be something that we get into <clears throat> in, in a podcast on on down the line. But th there are those who are intentionally aiming at one of those three aspects of man with quote unquote modern education, but it's not at the chest. It's aimed at the belly. You, you might say that the enlightenment aimed at the mind and that classical education aims at the chest, but modern education, uh, like post John Dewey, post Alice Bailey, uh, you know, in the age of... No relation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, if, 
if you have another daughter, don't name her Alice. Yeah. As great of a name as that is, <laughs> it's shunned. Uh, but but this modern education, like the the woke education, and the and it's 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 immediate predecessors. Uh, like in the age of Castle, the collaborative for academic, social, and emotional learning, it aims specifically at the belly. Um, One's emotions interacting with the social world. Well, wh- what do we do with those emotions? Somebody has to tell us what to do with those emotions. Oh, uh, sure. If, if there's no mind, you know, inculcating that mind for the sake of training the the belly, who's doing it? Like, right. Well, what well we you doing? have, you have, I guess two things you could have tyranny you know where the the tyrant makes those decisions or it's chaos and 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 you know that that could be the intent you know destruction via direct tyranny or destruction abolition of man by chaos but controlled chaos right because they they don't lose their don't lose their grip on the those reins Right, but but the the ones who have their reins on them are more than happy to to sacrifice them. Oh, definitely. You know, like like we see in uh, Lewis's that hideous strength. Like once the servants of the enemy show themselves to no longer be useful, they are quickly quickly jettisoned. Mm-hmm. Because again, the the mo here, like like the end in mind for Satan, the serpent. The, the whole point of the pattern of the world in the first place is the abolition of man because man was God's idea in the first place and that's what he's trying to destroy. Yeah, because he, he chose he chose uh, man instead of him. It's it's yeah. and, and it's funny. It, it, gosh, it's Cain and Abel all over again. It's the same pattern all over the place. Essentially, Cain was... That's why sin was crouching at his door because the devil's putting all of his eggs in that basket and it, it worked for him. Yeah, he doesn't like it that it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, as it says in Hebrews. And it's not the angels that he helps, but the sons of Abraham. And you know, right. just that just doesn't sit too well. Right. Yeah. When you're this glorious creature who seems all, all intent and purposes near to godliness in your in your essence uh as to what god seems to be in the way he's he's acting and then you're creating these animal hybrids that eat and poop and that's what you're that's what it's all about is that but that's an insult to your sophistication mm-hmm. uh there's so exactly you want to defy that and it's interesting the second example that Lewis brings up, we've talked about history, we've talked about the patterns, we've talked about seeing the patterns over and over again. Oh yeah, because I think that so far we've only covered the waterfall. Yeah, it's <laughs> this. Well, we're coming back. We're full yeah, circle. yeah, yeah. It's the cruise advertisement, right? There's this, there's this uh, junky advertisement that's kind of like what you'd see. That, that's the, featured in, in the textbook, right? The the, uh, the green book. Yeah, it's, it's the equivalent of a carnival cruise commercial. You know, Disney giving you, like, go to the place where, you know, Drake. you can fight Darth Vader and uh, shows pictures of a kid with a fake lightsaber and, you know, fighting stormtroopers. And I, you know, just kind of um, corny advertising. So that's the example. And so Lewis said, 
if they were good English teachers, mm-hmm. what they could do was quote like Wordsworth did, mm-hmm. and they could they could put th- these examples of bad or inadequate writing next to articulate writing that has spirit and power and right. poetry and truth to it, right? Which is is doing the same thing. It's inspiring you without manipulating you, and it's legitimately trying to see that this there's something about this place that is desirable and worthy of your desire it's not right, just trying to get right. money out of you so it, it like it, it merits attention it, it merits attention so and, and that that word is really important in, in those first couple examples is mm-hmm. like because if there is objective value if there is objective truth then there are particular things i mean everything merits a particular response whether we give it or not it 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 calls for it mm-hmm. uh we owe we owe it a certain response right um and this one in particular, what it does is, is it kind of does the same debunks, deconstructs, disenchants, and simply says, well, if you go to this place where, uh, you know, Drake sailed, you know, you're not really sailing there with Drake. It's not the same adventure. You're not really going on an adventure in the same way that, that they were yeah, at it's all. Like, well, Actually, yeah, like A C K S H U L L Y. Actually, like this fedora wearing guy with a black t shirt and a fedora and long hair, who and a like film he, degree, and he hasn't been out in the sun in years, is yeah. going to come up to you. And, Actually, meh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's pretty much what this guy's doing. It's it just Th- saying, that, that's what's in this textbook. Yeah, that's all it is. And so, what is what Lewis is saying again? What do you lose? First was nature, beauty, and wonder. The the most childlike experiences. The most childlike things. The second one is the sense of place. Uh, you lose a love for a sense of place, any place, a place you've always wanted to go or home itself, any place. You lose a desire for travel and history, right? Because you debunk history and say, well, you can't really engage things like they did. And maybe even if they did, you can't really know what it was like. So you lose the patterns because there's no, there's no such thing as a worthy place. There's no reason to travel somewhere, and history is emptied of its power. Therefore, history is emptied of its power. And the third one is actually from a different textbook that Lewis picked up. Uh, it says very similar. And he's showing that this isn't just a one time. He he only gives three <clears throat> examples, and I've had some students say, "Why didn't he give more examples?" I was like, "Well, you could." He did at the beginning show you that show people in the audience the textbook. Says you can go read it for yourself. Yeah. What that's doing is saying, "I'm giving you three examples." Uh, actually two from this book and one from another. If you want to read this book, you're gonna, there are way more examples than this, but I'm only going to select two for this purpose. So he's saying there's more there. You can go find mm-hmm. it. So he's not yeah. he's not just cherry picking. Have you ever looked up this book? I, I've looked it up on Amazon, but I haven't. It's expensive. Uh, yeah. But uh, if, if, you want, if you want to get, you can download a PDF copy from uh, the Internet Archive, like archive.org, and uh, it's called The Control of Language. Which, <laughs> yeah, it's called the control oh of language. Gosh. That that's the real book. So those of you keeping score at home, just go to archive.org, put in control of language, and that is the green book that Lewis uh, is, is talking about here in the first essay in Abolition of Man. Right, and um, the third third example is the horses. Right, that yeah. you're talking about the man on a horse in the sense of you know. Uh, like knighthood that, that's kind of the image presented yeah, which that also harkens back strongly to Chesterton yes yeah um, what this does is I can't remember do you remember the exact argument he's making about the horse uh, okay 
same operation under the same general anesthetic is being carried <laughs> out. Uh, sil- uh, debunking a silly bit of writing on horses where these animals are praised as the willing servants of the early colonists in Australia. And he follows in the same trap as Gaius and Titius, of Ruskin, Salibner, and the weeping horses of Achilles, and the war horse in the Book of Job, even of Bray Rabbit and Peter Rabbit, of man's prehistoric piety to our brother the ox, of all that the semi-anthropomorphic treatment of beast has meant in human history, and the literature where it finds noble or piquant expression, is not a word to say. Even of the problems of animal psychology as they exist for science, he says nothing. He contents himself with explaining that horses are not interested in a colonial expansion. That's all I get. So, horse, so in other words, like you love your animal, you love your horse, you love your goat, your chicken, your dog, your cat, your rabbit, whatever it is. And you're like, man, I love my dog. And so here comes Fedora, the fedora wearing debunker with his pale flesh and says, well, you know, really, your animals don't love you back. They just love being fed and pet because it gives them a certain like sense experience. But they don't really have, they don't think that they're a part of your family like you do. Right. So all of a sudden, a kid, all right, lost nature, beauty, wonder, gone. Place, travel, history, gone. Now, animals, pets, and the creatures, the animal world. Ladies and gentlemen, the six days of creation have now been emptied and swiped away of all of their meaning for for the, those in the image of God. They're left emptied with nothing by this point. And, and so, so, you know, and so then Lewis that. says the, the result of, of that kind of teaching coming from the Green Book is... Uh, that some pleasure in their own ponies and dogs they will have lost, some incentive to cruelty or neglect they will have received, some pleasure in their own knowingness will have entered their minds. That is their day's lesson in English. Though of English they have learned nothing, another little portion of the human heritage has been quietly taken from them before they were old enough to understand. So essentially they're, they are groomed out of any recognition of objective beauty and truth. I mean, ask, go to, go to a high school and ask a class, can you, can someone else's opinion, can you judge whether someone else's opinion is wrong? <coughs> mm-hmm. And uh, widespread, no. Because that's their opinion. That's their it's their truth. You'll hear it in Logan County, Kentucky. Oh yeah, you'll have yeah, a couple. Sure. Of, you'll have a couple of students who will resist that. Yeah. Um, comically, I had had one student who she was trying. She wasn't defending Hitler. <laughs> it sounded like that's what she did, but she was trying to say, well, there were people who were persuaded by him, and they thought what he was doing was good. Uh, so it's difficult to say. She wasn't saying that what he was doing was good, but she was saying that this this happened, therefore it's kind of hard to say. And so one kid just had stuff, and he just dropped everything and said, so is Hitler wrong? And everybody started laughing. Like, it's, is it difficult to say that he was wrong? And, of course, I just committed the Hitlerian fallacy. First person to mention him, and an argument loses automatically. But <laughs> seriously, is, yeah, is, is that a somebody jokingly made that okay. fallacy? If you're yeah. in an argument and you reference Hitler, you automatically lose the argument. Okay, because... see, like, so I, I take the exact opposite uh, stance. I trot out Hitler, like I just let the dude like goose step, like like right out to, to center stage. And uh, the way that I deal with it is, if you're not sure if something is good advice or not, say it to Hitler. And and if it's bad advice to give Hitler, it's probably bad advice. Like follow your heart. 
He followed his heart. He followed his heart so hard. Yeah. And people just didn't understand him. He followed his truth. Oh yeah. His heart. He was he was doing what made him happy. What what made him happy and he was brave. Yeah. Because people just didn't understand him and they they didn't want him to follow his heart and they really were they they really judged him so hard. Yeah. I hope everybody at home can note the sarcasm uh in our in our voices as we discuss that particular bloody tyrant. Yeah, so uh ultimately with these examples kids have been debunked of every every possible <clears throat> attachment and joy that you can have in the world in which has been given to you. And in doing so, the very purpose of the English teacher has also been laid waste because you could have been teaching uh, composition, you could have been teaching literary interpretation, you could have been teaching logic, you could have been teaching articulation and speech, you could have been teaching so how to think, um, and, and also what to think, uh, and to see the difference between thinking that is good and thinking that isn't, thinking that's harmful or helpful. Uh, so we don't we don't have any of that though. Instead, we've been given these sort of leftover philosophy, as you said. Uh, we've been given amateur philosophers have given something else. Yeah, and we've got a we've got a lot of amateur philosophers running around uh, these days, especially in schools. Tell us, <laughs> what are you what are you thinking? Well, I, I mean, wanna, if, I hear your, uh, hear well, your commentary on this. I've been engaged in a, in a series of meetings lately regarding school curriculum. And let's just say that I'm not impressed with the caliber of intellect that ends up leading these meetings as if they knew something about English language and literature. And instead... What's being force-fed to us to force-feed students is bad stuff. I mean, I mean, have you in these meetings has it ever been asked? Has it ever been posed the question, "What is the purpose of English as a subject?" Oh yeah, no, 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 arts? yeah, no, no way, not, not even close. Um, I, I, I will occasionally ask a question that is either ignored or not well received you know something uh, along along those along those lines you're treated like piggy from lord of the flies okay you're you're going to shun me i've never read lord of the flies it's okay it's okay i forgive you thank you i appreciate it um it's just one of those things for cultural reference. You've, you know, again. I, I know I need to read oh, Lord of the breathe, Flies, but hey, listen. That goes back to what I said when we were bantering. I have not read enough books. Like, I've read nearly every book of like you know half a dozen to a dozen authors, and then you know, here and there within the canon, mm-hmm. but I can't say that I'm widely read but i can say that i'm i'm deeply read and and one of the ones that i simply haven't read is that one lord of the flies oh, there's stuff there's stuff i haven't read i have such a fragmented <clears throat> education it's embarrassing you know because because like i said i didn't read until i was 18 19 years old yeah and uh even if i did when i was in logan county at the time my gosh like there was nothing offered um Two, two of the teachers I had got 
uh, fired the year after I had them, if that tells you anything. Oh, Eng- serious. English teachers, yeah. So it wasn't a great time. Uh, and even mm-hmm. if even if they, they were, I had one, uh, Miss Spurlock, she was great. She sparked a love of Shakespeare, even though I didn't know why I liked Hamlet. I knew there was something great going on there. That's really mm-hmm. all I could get out of it. There was really? something great going on here. And uh, I think thank her for that because I didn't have that before. Um, but for the most part, you know, I did. So I've picked up just like shards of glass trying to make some kind of uh, some some vase out of shards. That's what I've tried to construct. Well, 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 and of course, the, the reason for that in the first place, and, and I would say that it's it's largely similar for me. I mean. I think that I probably had a little bit better background because of the uh, the Christian school that I went mm. to, and uh, and because my my mom especially um, always had books around. Um, but the uh, the bad guys in the abolition of man have largely, up to this point, won the day. <clears throat> now I think that their their grip has not been quite as perfected as maybe they would have hoped by this point, because th- th- there is a resurgence or that th- there is growing interest in classical education and homeschooling to a much greater extent than back in the, the 30s and 40s. You know, th- those those things would have been largely uh, not heard of. I mean, n- not homeschooling and certainly not... I mean, Christian, specifically Christian education was... Uh, but of course, like Christian schools became a thing as... Public education had had its had its value structure and its its basis really in Judeo Christian not just not just principles but uh, ed- ed- education. Once that once that was stripped away, that then there was this need that that Christians started recognizing for a return to uh, t- to that foundation. Well, a lot of these a lot of these. Uh, private Christian schools, def- definitely not. I'm not even saying most, but a good portion of them. Uh, it's public school that doesn't teach evolution. Is really all it ends up. Well, you, right, yeah. So I'm, I'm talking more about you know the the impetus for the beginning of the mm. of, of the Christian school yeah, movement. Yeah. But yeah, I, I totally agree that that in practice, <clears throat> it. But but the reason for that is that so many times their teachers. Ha- went to public schools themselves that they've gone through the the state education programs but even i think in 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 a lot of christian colleges the education departments are people who whether they know it or not are disciples of dewey right and they they haven't they haven't tried to develop a a uniquely christian pedagogy well they've they've lost the they've lost the tradition you know the uh, I cannot remember what the Greek word is, probably because I don't know Greek. Uh, but it's it's the word that like traditions considered a bad word. Okay. And like people don't like tradition, um, but it's the same word that's used negatively for the traditions of man when Christ is the Pharisees. The same word that he uses and that Paul frequently uses of passing down. Okay. Is, is the same verb. It means traditioned. So that's what tradition means. It's you're handing things down. To to others mm-hmm. well it's not that these things haven't been handed down but they haven't widely been handed down so like the tools on what it would mean to have an education based on virtue on on enlightening the fruit of the spirit and so all knowledge is connected to this like this mm-hmm. it's all this is the gravity 
of, of it all. And, well, right. The, the, the fear, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, mm-hmm. but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And so what we have with the, the, the education envision, not, I don't even think it's envisioned by the writers of the green book. It's more like it's the, the, the they're just, uh, avatars of, of an ideology <clears throat> that starts education, not with the fear of the Lord, but with, I mean, literally anything else will do as long as it's not that it's fine. <clears throat> but most often in practice, what it is, is, uh, self knowledge. It, it, it starts with the self rather than the Lord. I mean, it's, it's like, like, uh, like just a, a 180 inversion of the truth. And, and I think that that's what we see so many times with the pattern of the world, like, like why it's so useful for Christians to be cognizant of the patterns of the world, and, which is really what, what we're talking about ten, tonight and what we tend to talk about uh, in, in every episode of, of, of Deuterocanons is recognizing the pattern of the world. Why? Because that, if, we don't, if, if we're not even sure what God's way is, if we recognize the pattern of the world, well, we can imagine what, what the opposite of that might be. And, you know, uh, here's a, just a, like a, an analogy that, that I've noticed in, in my teaching. So often, if I'm teaching punctuation like comma placement, um, I'll ask kids, you know, I'll, I'll write a sentence on the board. Okay, where do the commas go? And sometimes the, they'll, they'll know and, and I'll say, okay, so yeah, you're right. You're right that a comma goes there. Why? And they'll say, well, because there should be a pause. I said, no, the opposite is true. You pause because there should be a, because there's a comma. So like, that's just this, this really clear example of the truth. And sometimes they're taught that like specifically by teachers. Well, you know, you just put a comma wherever you feel like there should be a pause. It's like, no, that is absolutely upside down. Grammar, you know, (laughs) just feel it out. Yeah. Follow your heart. So. So wh- wh- why why is this the case? Like why why have you, for example, um, like why why did you have such a fragmented education? Why are we both teaching in a fragmented educational situation? Well, Lewis Lewis delves delves into that um, just a, a page or two after where you were. He says, uh, "I doubt whether Gaius and Titius that that's his uh, pseudonyms for the writers of the Green Book." I doubt whether Gaius and Titius have really planned, under cover of teaching English, to propagate their philosophy. I think they have slipped into it for the following reasons. In the first place, literary criticism is difficult, and what they actually do is very much easier. So, it's because doing, like, doing things the right way, educating properly, or when it comes to you know, dealing with English, actual valid in touch with objective truth and reality literary criticism that that's a that's a hard thing to do and so for the most part what we get is english teachers who it's not it's not that they they're choosing to not do it they don't know that it exists but they don't know that it exists that it exists because that they don't who, who would have told them like who, who would have told them that, that they're that they're that such a thing exists as as, as an objective truth that can be elucidated by a by a by a good book right yeah i mean also it's difficult enough to read shakespeare right it's difficult enough 
um, it takes a lot of practice. It's even more difficult to inspire others to read Shakespeare. <laughs> it's even more difficult to teach others to be able to read Shakespeare mm -hmm. fluently. That takes a kind of wisdom. It's not just a skill set. Like it take to be able to do that. Um, we clamor for standards. Everything has to be standards based. And we talk, we were talking about this earlier. If you seek out just someone like Shakespeare, um, or if you just read Flannery O'Connor short stories or whatever it is, if you just spend, uh, take a steady diet of whatever, if you understand these things, you're getting all the skills thrown in that you could ever possibly ask for. And, but you're also getting these thought and these contemplation of truths and of the deepest of all things, the treasure trove of the best of what humanity has to offer, which may be, it may very well be antagonistic to Christ and everything about him. Even so, read it. Read Nietzsche. Don't run away and hide from him. Read it and deal with it. And hopefully you have that well-trained mind enough where you can see and understand. Like, what was the, what's the Aristotle quote? The mark of an educated man can entertain another argument uh, without having to agree. Hmm. Uh, while being able to disagree with it, yeah, uh, completely—it's essentially steel manning to be able to steel man sure, everything yeah. else. So, the the capacity to do that, just to—if you just did a a a knowledge based curriculum, and you had a vision that it was all pointing towards something else—not not skills, but it's all this content which is pointing you toward essentially wisdom. It's not the same as knowledge. It, it can't be just toward knowledge. It's wisdom is how to live. So all this stuff has to have this applicability on how to how to live. It's interesting that um, it's the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and and, and not just it is the beginning of knowledge as well. But it's it's not just knowledge because it's the knowledge toward wisdom. How do you live? Uh, which goes back to the your discussion of fruit of the spirit. This is what it's all aimed toward, and uh, you know he Lewis says if you train essentially there's this this five steps of what he's saying, because the second half of this, after he really destroys the green book, he's saying, well, what is the, what is the other mode of education which they have rejected? And he goes through, and Lewis is being, uh, he's being, he's being generous and showing how this is a part of the human fabric. Mm -hmm. And he does say, I've written about this in another book. I am a, he's, I'm a Christian. I've written about this in another book, Mere Christianity. He's saying how, all of the fragment, all of the the seeds of Christ planted in all people and all places and all times, every tribe, tongue, and nation, is harvested in Christ. But those seeds are still there all over the place, and we we want to celebrate when they get close, like Paul did in Athens. Man, that that's you've, a fascinating story right there. It. Like he could have, all he could have done was talk about how like your paganism is completely wrong in every possible yeah. way. All these gods, it's all wrong, 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 wrong. He instead focuses on the one seed there where they got it. And yeah. he's taking this one thing and showing how there's truth, yeah. goodness, and beauty there. Christ is present. All of the filth here, there's this one thing that shines brightly, and he focuses upon that. So Lewis is doing that essentially here, of saying that all these different philosophies and all these different places are all circling around the same thing. They do have differences, but that doesn't mean that just because there are differences, there's no truth. He's saying they're, off, they're not real differences. He says mere Christianity, a different morality would be like running away in battle. Cowardice is being 
uh, called courageous. So we were, we completely invert virtue. So to be courageous is to run away in battle is if your wife is getting assaulted by a guy, you go in another room cause you don't want to fight him. And that's being, you're getting a medal of honor for courage. That's a different morality, right? right. That's not what Lewis is saying. These people are trying and failing there. There's some kind of law within them, within the world. It's there, but they're, they're not perfect with it. They're a little too extreme, right? If in Sharia law is still something you may get your hand cut off here. We don't do that, but both in both cases, even though it's different by degree, we're still acknowledging that there's something inherently wrong with theft. So the issue is that it's, we're all circulating around the same thing. We don't quite know what to do with it. And we're not, we're not even keeping our own standards, much less everybody else's standards, but there is something going on here. Yeah. And of course he says the answer is in Christ, but for, for his present purpose, he's just saying all of the great teachers and pretty much every culture when it's on its game is trying to convey whatever this is to, to boys and girls so that they can become men and women and do their best to try to attain whatever this is. Right. And so he said, uh, Lewis also says that there's, uh, there's, you can, one can no more invent a new morality than invent a new primary color. I mean, they're, they're equally impossible. Or to create, and to create a new sky for a sun to set in. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it, it doesn't work. So, uh, so we covered the three the three examples uh, or, or illustrations from the Green Book that that Lewis Lewis uses in that that first essay and in the collection uh, called uh, not the collection but the uh, the first essay called uh, Men Without Chests. So, so where does he go after those after those three? Uh, this, this one he's describing, I believe, on page. Yeah, uh, roughly 14, halfway through. Well, he, he says, the, the famous quote here, the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to, uh, to irrigate deserts. Yeah, yeah. And the right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate <clears throat> just sentiments. Uh, by starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. So in this, I think they're having to essentially get rid of the nonsense of the past and all the sentimentality we hold from the past and, and glean from it so that we can essentially be, be liberated from that. Uh, so the against these jungles of the past that are trying to sweep away, uh, that are grown up and you can't navigate and wade through. Once we get rid of that, then the utopia can come about. He's saying that's, yeah, not, okay. he's saying that's not yeah. the real education, though. Yeah. It's actually we're barren. Uh, it's a barren right. land where there's no life. And we've... There's is a desert land that has to be. It's T.S. Eliot's wasteland that Lewis didn't like. Yeah, and <laughs> I, yeah, I, I hadn't realized the the clear connection between that that um, analogy of Lewis's, you know, the modern educator thinking that he he's got to cut down jungles. That really is uh, the, the the Marxist the, the dialectical sense of uh, removing the negative so that the positive emerges. Mm-hmm. Like you just get rid of the uh the 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 owners of the means of production and the uh the dictatorship of the proletariat will flourish and will then naturally develop into you know the uh the 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 utopian commune you know and 
And that's I, I think that that's one of the things that, that he he must have in mind in in that analogy. Yeah, I mean, you create you, you create a vacuum that gets rid of everything from the past and just magically and mystically that vacuum is just filled because just because it's filled so that's kind of i mean it also but it like isn't that their cosmology too because in the beginning you you don't have this 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 sentient gracious loving being that always existed the the thingy that always existed is unconscious and just goes boom and then it's it's just all ma- it just all magically does its thing for absolutely no discernible reason and and actually all all reason is therefore an illusion you know it's it's alchemy it just it it just happens total nonsense yeah and again you you have to reject your your senses you have to and not just your physical senses but sense to to think that there's no like what we're doing here was chemically determined because there's no such thing as any sort of freedom of will or freedom of thought at all it's all just necessary because in a materialist perspective everything is necessary and determined there can't be there's no breathing room for anything else because that gets into the woo-woo, right? That gets yeah. into a spirit. That gets into something that you cannot quantify or, or even quite qualify. And you can't have that. So, which is bizarre that all of these all of these podcasts in the world are just uh, deterministic necessities and the material materialist philosophy. Uh, that's an that's absurd. No yeah. one, like, no one, no one, no one can. You can't live that way. You you can't apply that there's there's no there's no ethos where that can lead to a fruitful life and so so then of course another famous quote of lewis's that that kind of encapsulates that perfectly is when he says that if if it turned out that the universe had no meaning there would have been no way to find it out Because because that's it's an impossible there's it's an impossibility right it's it's zero in, in the denominator the 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 meaning of like the meaning of life that there is no meaning that's that's an absolute like, law of non contradiction people it can't work it can't work <laughs> but but that that's exactly what they what they lean into and that that's exactly why ultimately what these things lead to is well, what happened in the 20th century all across Europe, Russia, China, like that, that, that's, that's the fruit. So we talked about the fruit of the spirit. So what's the fruit of antichrist? Like what, what's the fruit of rejecting Christ as the ideal or rejecting the very concept that there might be an ideal I mean, because, like, at least if a person recognizes that that, that that there is an ideal to which one might strive, well, you know, then that that's really close. You know, such a person is close to the kingdom. But as soon as that's rejected and that's 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 followed out, that that's that's taken a hold of by the applied science sciences, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 politicians, the the applied psychologists called educators, right. It's 
a hundred million dead in China, eleven million dead in the areas controlled by Nazi Germany, sixty million dead in Russia. Yeah, it's the abolition of a lot of men. The well put. The uh, as we were talking about earlier, since this this Marxism and Marxism is about becoming hive-minded to be socialized oh yeah yeah for sure the annihilation of of all attachments to what once was all personal attachments because they're considered selfish right whether it's property or family or anything else um, you become of one mind like the essentially is this oversoul idea it's this it's a essentially state pantheism where you right oversoul also known as a the, the the global mind or the yeah. or the world mind that that's exactly yeah. uh, what Alice Bailey calls it in education in the new age yeah so you're a drop returning to the sea even but you are a, a distinct drop as long as we until we shuffle off this mortal coil but we don't shuffle it off we just you know go to annihilation but there <laughs> that's what they think but nonetheless this this view I mean really you know Marxism is is about you know, people will call things Marxist that they don't like, and, and they may be right to some extent, and then people will scoff and like, well, you know, somebody who's conservative thinks everything's Marxist. But if we get down to it, what he was talking about, it, it is becoming, like, your sense of salvation is becoming the socialized man of this this deep, profound, allegedly, brotherhood where um, you, society has a need and you fill that, fulfill that need, and it's a symbiotic thing with the, the state or the society and you. Um, and you're emptied of self and filled with the other. But the dynamic here isn't, and it's never described this way, this dynamic. Now, you, you do get this with, with uh, you know, you'll some South, uh, South American um, religious leaders, but... The, the dynamic, I think this is the difference between Lewis's method, what he's talking about, and this other one, this whole world system. One is motivated by love and the, the, the ties that truly bind, and the other is motivated by power. It's mm-hmm. the will to power. Um, again, Adam and Eve rejected love because they wanted to be empowered. And the other is a vision of virtue so that we can love. Like, virtue because love is the greatest virtue and though that is the fundamental difference the the motivating factor is going to be love or it's going to be power hmm. there's i don't know that there's another one because wisdom is the, the the purpose of wisdom is to aim us toward the love of others i mean it's 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 love in action right exactly like it's so so wisdom i mean uh, I mean, we, we could wisdom is proved by our actions, as Christ said. You know? Right, you know, like like we could look at uh, at that word in in Hebrew, uh, but if we just think about the the English word wisdom, you know, we got the we got the D O M, so it's 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 a it's a it's a region, uh, you know, like dominion, uh, kingdom. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 the area of influence. Um, or just domain. It's it's the place, the 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 uh, the, the boundaries. But the the the, uh, the WIS that's that's eyes. It's vision. You know, WIS is is really VIS and VID. So so with wisdom, what we have is is 
is the, the, the domain of clear sight. It's like, well, well wh- wh- why, why do you need clear sight? Wow. To, it, it's, it's discernment of how and where and when and why to love. What are you looking at when you're seeing? Clear right. And, and so, and of, of course, it's also attending. You know, like Pajot talks about, like that, that worship is attention. Mm-hmm. And that's, so all, all, all of those things are, 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 are very, very tied together. And so, of course, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Okay, so despise wisdom and discipline. So it means by rejecting attention to God, they are also rejecting, despising, discounting, debunking, deconstructing the concept that there are particular things that they ought to see and render that which those things merit. Render to those things that, 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 which, that which they merit. Because, you know, in wisdom, like in the scope of that which we can see and can see clearly, discipline comes in because it recognizes, uh, like, the, the, let's say, ordinate loving. Uh, you know, Lewis wrote the four loves. And so, like, the four loves, that, that really is a discussion of wisdom because it's, it's love in action. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the epistle of, is it James? Let us not love merely in word, but also in deed. That's, he's talking about wisdom. Uh, yeah, I mean, let your, you know, religious duties be taking care of orphans and widows. Like, right. Let that be... That it has to be applied, it has to be lived. I mean, again, Christ said wisdom is proved by her actions. It's about doing. It's becoming. Yes. You must become, not just. And I, I was thinking, like, if you want to take this and look at all of the literature that truly inspires, um, and then in reality as well, um, real stories of things that have happened, the hero is fighting for love. The saint becomes... Uh, immersed in love and the villain wants power mm-hmm. and so you, you you we see this in, and this is intuitive you don't have to teach this really with with kids I mean it's easy to spot it's easy to spot the villain and see we like to make the field gray now right so it's the the landscape is filled with anti-heroes mm-hmm. and and villain sympathetic villains we've deconstructed the hero there is no such thing as a saint. Well, shoot, there, there's that whole Disney thing with, like, reinterpreting all of the villains from the old cartoons. You know, like Maleficent. Like, Cruella Deville. Yeah. She's a cruel devil, and now she's, you know, we feel for her. Right. We feel for her. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm surprised, I'm surprised they didn't make Emperor Palpatine on his stupid return. Um I'm surprised they didn't make him sympathetic. That's because he's a man. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> That's true. The, and, no, and, no the, yeah, they'll hang on to a toxic white man. No yeah. problem. He's super white, man. Like he's like literally he's as white as you can get. Right. Decrepit old white dude. Perfect. With his fleets. What a stupid movie. I don't even, I don't even really like Star Wars that much. Well, I certainly don't anymore. Oh, no, not anymore. But uh, but you see it. Yeah, I mean, it's 
yeah, the deconstruction. Because what what happens when you know kids grow up and they have no no heroes? Um, well, they they get they, they go they go on Amazon and they buy Dr. Fauci votives. That's what happens. Yeah. Um, it's, well, I mean, it, it's it's fundamentally sad and tragic because uh, Samwise Gamgee was inspired by these stories. Oh, right. Um, and then he did it. Exactly. Because it gives, you know, something worth, you know, what are we holding on to, Sam? There's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. <laughs> it's worth fighting for. Uh, so you... And he goes on like those those folks could have turned around and given up, but they didn't. And he doesn't give up, and he keeps going. Right. And he so we think like T- Tolkien said he's the hero of the story. Sam's the hero yeah. of the story. He's your simple. He's simple. He's not intelligent, as at least in our traditional understanding. He's not a wizard, right? He he just loves stories, and he's a good gardener, and he's a good friend, and it's really he's just he's your every man. He's just a good pal that you have, but he is the hero of the story. He, he carried Frodo up to Mountain Doom. Quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> he carried him. Uh, without without thinking, which this is what would happen now, uh, you would have somebody usurp the hero. Like, he would have taken the ring and mm-hmm. uh, thrown it away and become the like, that's what that's Somebody was rewriting that story. That's exactly what they would do. But Sam, in his humility carried Frodo and, and let Frodo face what he had to face. Right. Uh, that, that human, that humility is completely missing from contemporary stories because we have an, in, we, we have generations now of, um, essentially going back to that last bit. Um, we expect, was it you know, enterprise? What's, what's the line? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so, that's that's a great line. So no, so going back to the abolition of man, um, this is on I believe the the very the very last page, maybe the very last paragraph of that first chapter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so uh, and all the time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across a statement that what our civilization needs is more drive. Or dynamism, or self-sacrifice, or creativity. Or critical thinking. Or critical thinking, yeah. Or global citizenship. It's like, what? Or what co- is... Or collaboration. Right. In, sh- in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate... And bid the geldings be fruitful, and of course now that's what we're actually doing literally. Yeah, uh, what is it? Uh, testosterone's dropped in you know, men forty percent, one percent every year. Uh, Holy since cow! Since our fathers came of age, one percent every year. Um, so low T, low T, um, and this. Uh, Gosh, expecting collaboration and uh, innovation, critical thinking, all right. of this great citizenship, uh, this business savvy, all, you know, frugality, all these things. Oh, nobody wants anybody to be frugal. I'm a kid. But <laughs> the all of 
all of these things that we essentially demand. These are the standards. This is what we want people to do. Uh, you're re- you're rendering them impossible because they're meaningless. They're, right. So right. so but why? And, and this is what Lewis gets into. This is why he doesn't stop here. We need those things. Now we know why we need those things. Right. Because <clears throat> because they're virtues. Now emptied of the other virtues, they're utilities. They're essentially yeah. utilities so that we can manage in society and have it function the way – have it function, like Edward Bernays talked about. We need, to, we need the, the democracy to function so it doesn't get too chaotic. So it's, it's all utilitarianism. But there are still virtues if they're properly contextualized. It is good to be somebody who creates, somebody who collaborates, somebody who can think well, uh, somebody who is a, a, a good, truthful, dependable citizen. These are great things in proper context, but not in a proper context. Guess who else? Let's go back to Hitler. Who is a great collaborator? Oh, who yeah. is a great yeah. innovator? Who's somebody who had a global impact? You know, a bunch of the French collaborated. Actually, there was a Madison Square Garden, I believe, in 1933, 34, or maybe that late as 36. Madison Square Garden sold out uh, because there were uh, American Nazis and Nazi supporters who went in, in celebration of the Reich. Uh, in the 30s in America. Oh, yeah. So, um, well, well, because like Hitler, you know, going back to Francis Galton and eugenics, you know, eugenics got a foothold first in the United States and in, uh, and in Britain. And Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf that, uh, and I forget the guy's name, but it was uh, one of the er- influential early eugenicists who, that guy's book, Hitler said that that book was his Bible. And he praised oh the United States for its implementation of eugenic practices. Yeah, Joseph Goebbels, uh, in some interview, was saying that he was greatly inspired by America's implementation of sterilization, right. of delinquents, of those who are mentally handicapped, uh, people who were in asylums. You're yeah, second and, and, generation, yeah. just poor, second generation. Some they right. would, they would uh, sterilize you and recent, right. recently, right? There have been women's prisons they've been sterilized and they didn't even know it well yeah so so officially most of that ended in the 70s um i think that the uh the the last one that's sort of on record was from 1981 but the supreme court case that opened the door to all that was buck v bell in 1924 and that that's i'm not going to go into too much detail but let's just say that uh that case had not been cited very much up until oh let's say a couple years ago when it came to uh, particular force procedures. And and so it was really stunning to see all of these judges, uh, judges appointed by Republicans and judges appointed to uh, by Democrats who were unanimous in citing Buck v. Bell as justification for uh, the some of the policy choices of of the time a couple years ago. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What a precedent. Yeah, cute, huh? Yeah, there's a precedent for it, therefore it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this this virtue, and interpr- or this enterprise anyway, uh, demanding this kind of virtue without a context for it because there's no meaning, there's no value, there's no connection to reality. This isn't real, but we still need it. That's Lewis is dealing with that in parts two and three, especially three. Three is the mechanism of how it works. He's just describing what it's going to look like. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's Brave New World in an argumentative form. Actually, not even, it's descriptive. He's describing the philosophy of Brave New World in, in, the, in the abolition of man 
lecture, which is chapter three. Right. And so, so what he's doing is he's just, he's just laying out, okay, so we know that these things are being taught right now. And so, so hence the first chapter. Uh, then the second chapter gets into uh, the Tao, by which he means uh, the universal concept of objective value, objective truth, mm-hmm. objective morality. And then, uh, and then that third chapter, the abolition of man, the uh, the title essay, goes into okay. So, th- this is where it's going. This this is where this is where logically it has to go because this it's it's already it's already happening, and and so I like I find that that I, I'm excited to to eventually, uh, maybe another podcast or two from now get into uh, that chapter because Lewis. I don't. I don't know if it's quite quite right to say that he was a prophet in the biblical sense, but he certainly understood literature. He understood story, and therefore he recognized uh, pattern and and plot development. And he 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 saw he saw what was coming, and he it it, it it's amazing to to read it in light of things that have happened, you know, recently. Yeah, he could he could read the times at the very least. You know, right. Uh, which, by the way, that's something that Jesus told us that we need to do. You know, l- l- late in his ministry, I think maybe during his last week, he, he said something to his disciples along the lines of, um, you know, you all can you all can tell when, you know, the season is changing. Like, you can tell, you know, by looking at the fig tree. Uh, so, like, you, you, need, you need to also be able to tell the signs of the times. So again, there's there's direct instruction from Jesus to believers that that we need to have that mindset. Yeah, I mean, just the word signs, right? <clears throat> there's signals being sent all yeah. the time. Yeah, and we have to be able to decode the signals that are being presented. Um, and I think the, again, the, the question that we're being left with is that he leaves with it into that first chapter, and he doesn't finish this. Is well, how can you? empty purpose and meaning from human life and still have a well-managed functional society and uh the answer is technocracy Hmm. Uh, yeah that's where you go those are the conditioners and then it becomes this hive mind type existence in chapter two lewis that's lewis's i think his best work is is counterclaiming he gives the best possible argument that goes against what he's saying and disproves that counter. Yeah, he steel mans the argument, he's like a, as you as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and, and that's the Tao. So, so the, he brings up the Tao in part one. This this is the the v- traditional morality. He calls it a bunch of names, uh, for, uh, platitudes, first principles, the image uh, of God, uh, Rata. Right. Yep. Yeah. The Tao. He calls it the Tao because he's being, again he's being generous and saying this is a universal reality. But he, he gives it several names, but uh, of this traditional morality or, or of the view of objective value um, is this is, and he gives several descriptions and he goes through, you know, Plato and Aristotle and all these other people and actually shows a negative version of Plato in chapter two. Um, but in, in chapter one, he's introducing the Tao and he doesn't give the criticisms of it quite yet. He, he just kind of, introduces it as expositional and two he's as we'll see next time he gives all of the reasons that the contemporary society 
had been giving. This uh, Essentially, the modern world has arguments against the Tao. They viciously attack it in one form or another. And he lays out the best arguments against it. What is it that they're saying? What other philosophies are trying to contradict and therefore disprove this Tao? And he lays them all out and then uses the Tao as not only a shield, but as a weapon to slay those things. So once he's able to do that, he's saying, okay, let's assume that we don't have the Tao that is gotten rid of. Let's assume that these things I've disproven end up kind of winning the day. What are things going to look like? And that leads into chapter three. So I, I find it really fascinating and encouraging uh, and, and inspiring that, that this is a book that you read with seniors in high school um, here, here locally. What, what kind of response do you, do you get from it? Uh, a student both of us had a few years ago, um, an archer. Okay. He came up to me and said that he wasn't quite aware. He knew there was something important about the book. He, he, he read it and he, he got it. He understood it. But he said when he got to college, he said that, that book meant everything. Like he hmm. saw it. It yeah. was all of a sudden like, oh my gosh. He, he intuited, like he, exp- it was like an existential thing where like, yeah. oh my gosh, what Lewis said is exactly right. I've had several students tell me that once they've been in college. Wow. Because the green book is the university. That's all it's for. Oh, oh for. yeah. yeah. Unless for you're going sure. to do engineering or something like that. <clears throat> it's, it's there. I mean, I remember I did. I was teaching. I was teaching. I was probably 28 years old. And I remember... I said the word capitalism in a scoffing way in class. And I, and I said, and I thought to myself, I was like, what, what was that? Where did that come from? I haven't studied capitalism well enough to talk about it in class. Why am I saying it like that? Hmm. And I was like, where did that come from? I was like, oh yeah, I went to college. That's where it came from. <laughs> it was, it's just in the air. It's, it's yeah. in the part of the diet, you know, and we are what we eat. So it, it came oh, apart. And, you know, I, had to work some of these things out. It's just there. And so he, God bless him. He, he really felt that. And it, it was, it was a struggle. It's almost mm-hmm. like it was a spiritual battle. Yeah. And, and that was uh, like in seeing that and seeing what Lewis was saying. So I guess those who have ears to hear, they will, they will hear and yeah. eyes to see, they will see. Yeah. And for a lot of them, and what I'm really wanting to do is like, this is the best I can do. So what I'm giving students is, Seek transcendent meaning. Hmm. Seek transcendent value. The transcendental is truth, goodness, and beauty. And try to attain these by love. That's the mode hmm. in which you can. That's the ethos in which you will attain truth, goodness, and beauty. Otherwise, it's not going to be those. You're going to use those for, you know, like Nietzsche and Dewey and all those guys were classically trained thinkers. They had all the tools, but it wasn't love motivating them. They were, they, so therefore, it was a corrosion or corrupt form of truth, goodness, and beauty. You know, it was, it was lies, evil, and corruption is what ends up happening whenever it's not love, it's power instead. Uh, at least Nietzsche was so brutally honest in saying it was the will to power. And at least he wrote his book, Antichrist, to let us know exactly what he thought of Christianity. <laughs> and, he, and his argument was, was Christianity. He said that Christianity is wrong because love is not the mo- should not be the motivating factor of existence. Um, it should be the will to power. 
and happiness is the feeling that power increases. Good is attaining power. Happiness is the feeling that power increases, and evil is weakness. Right. So, well, and so, so what, what's happening there? Uh, something that 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 Byron uh, brought to my attention was the term linguistic theft, and I think that that that's something that uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, that the bad guys like to do. They 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 take the words that we or mm. just normal people use and understand in a particular way and what, what, what do they call it sublation where where they take opposite things and say no it's really the same thing and and to say so love and, and the will to will to power are not the same thing but really neat you know Nietzsche like you're saying is is inverting the commonly understood uh, traditional definitions of, of words yeah and so so the battle that we're fighting is it, yeah exactly so so the battle that we're fighting uh certainly is linguistic uh, uh among other things and so so that the, there has to be attention given to the 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 meanings of words and what's interesting uh you know kind of going back to school is that that's one of the biggest deficits and in my current students is vocabulary you know because like like Wendell Berry talks about in uh the joy, joy of sales resistance the way that uh, that there there's this assumption that literacy has nothing to do with reading books and knowing words knowing the meanings of words and and w- w- when i read that when i was in college i thought okay yeah i guess maybe that there are some weirdos out there who who would think this thing that when that Barry is saying when come to find out that's the common practice within my field it's just stunning mm. but again all, th- that that also goes to the abolition of man because if 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 students don't even have a grasp of their of their own language like how how are they going to fight back when somebody tries to sublate meanings on them and say that this thing that they thought that they knew really is the exact opposite. Right. I, I think what, what I'm trying to do in, in a probably a fumbling kind of way with the curriculum I've set up is we end with, I, I try, we haven't gotten to it the last couple of years, but after Lewis we do Hamlet because Act One, Hamlet says, "I wish this too solid flesh would uh, resolve and melt into a dew." In other words, he wishes he would die. I wish, I wish God had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Mm-hmm. I wish I could just kill myself and get all this over with. Act Three, right in the middle of his conflict, is it better to be alive and to fight against the injustices of the world and the injustices within myself, or just to die? Would be better off if I were dead and have to deal with this crap. So he's he's caught in the middle. He's the tug of war on both sides. Act five. Um, there's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. The readiness is all. So he says he his his resolution is it's in God's hands, and all I have to do is be ready for whatever happens, and I will be content, and I'll meet it in peace, no matter what it is. And he, as he's facing what's potential, he know, and he's in the crosshairs. Like he knows he's being manipulated. He's being set up. 
and yet he still says that. So it's, it's, it's the ultimate triumph of somebody in true despair and, and end up c- celebrating life. And incidentally, he does resolve the injustices of the kingdom. Um, but with Lewis, it's, I've tried to set it up where we're seeing Macbeth, we see Frankenstein and his monster, we see you know, Jack and Roger and the boys and Lord of the Flies, uh, we see Mustafa Mond, Bernard, the whole world, a brave new world, and we see Big Brother, O'Brien, and company. We're seeing these visions of villainy, these visions of monsters. And every kid, like no kid's going to argue that, well, they're just misunderstood, or, you know, really, it's, you know, maybe, I don't, maybe you don't see it that way. Maybe they're really good, and it's just about perspective. No one comes away from those books with that point of view, and I don't mm-hmm. have to tell them that. It's yeah. just in, that you see it. It's obvious. And so, and also we see the heroes and they feel sympathy and compassion and uh, heartache and heartbreak if they're really engaged over things that happen to these heroes, um, like the Savage and Winston and uh, the ones from Lord of the Five. I don't want to spoil anything there. But <laughs> <laughs> so, but th- so they get to Lewis, they have, they're coming with some understanding of what does it look like if we have men with chess and the men without chess. And when the men without mm, chess yeah. win, when we that 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 is what creates that's when you can have a world controller. That's when you can have Big Brother. Mm-hmm. That's when Jack takes over the island. That's at that point and also go to Frankenstein, that vulnerable point of his despair that he doesn't deal with his internal conflict, the grief of the death of his mother. In that darkness, he creates a monster that destroys his life and everybody's life whom he loves. He gives, he wants glory and fame for that, but there's also this other existential thing he's not dealing with. That glory and fame, that power, causes him taking for granted his loved ones, and he truly loves them. Taking that for granted, he ends up creating a monster. And, and, and of course, Macbeth, he was a good man. He was a great hero, and he became probably... I, I, Maybe the most monstrous of all of them, and his wife as well. So they see these things, and, and he actually has a line that's straight out of Nietzsche. Uh, as Chesterton said, uh, Shakespeare put in a couple of lines everything Nietzsche had to say. He said he's talking about with Richard the Third. He said, and he put it in its proper place, hmm. out of the mouth of a half insane hunchback on the edge of defeat. <laughs> so, but it, but with Macbeth, it's the same thing. He said, uh, "For mine own good, all causes shall give way." My good, again, hmm. Adam and Eve get to define what's good for them. It's whatever they yeah. feel. Um, f- my own good, for my own good, everything else can essentially go to hell. It can all go to chaos. Doesn't matter. It can all the world can be destroyed as long as I get whatever I want. That's a line he says, and he says to return. Hey, I'm I'm uh, waist deep in blood already. To turn back would be just as tedious as to keep going. We're but we're yet but young indeed. Beth's like I could repent and turn around, but it would be easier if I just kept going in and and completely swim in this blood that I'm causing. I'm just getting started. But it's after he says, "For my own good, all causes shall give way." Therefore, I'm going to keep doing whatever I can to get what I want. And then you, they go through all these other people, all these other characters, and seeing it's something similar. They've systematized it instead of being this raw desire of a tyrant. It's being systematized in Brave New World in 1984. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it emerge from pe- relative peace in Lord of the Flies. 
And then we get to Lewis and Lewis is explaining what's going on, that Hmm. it's actually you're being propagandized to become Macbeth, to become to do to fame and glory and power of, of Victor, of becoming Jack or Roger, uh, of, of fitting in to one of the, the five casts or, or just to be just to love big brother. Like you're being, so yeah. Lewis is telling you this is in, in to have this sense of virtue. That is the resistance to this. Yeah. And, and, and ultimately, well, and, and, and this, this is maybe getting too far into that, that third essay, in the book but when when people are conditioned in the manner in which lewis is describing by modern education what ends up happening is that there there ends up not being any way of recognizing the monster when he arrives and in fact the goal then is for only the monster to exist and nothing else. Well, and, and then, but then, if you, then the monster becomes the hero. At that point, right? That you can, you've completely inverted things to where the, the monster is not just neutral or there or a necessity, but then you celebrate the monster, right? It's, it's become, it's become truly demonic at that point. Right, and of course, maybe a more biblical word for monster is beast. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're talking about the system yeah. of the beast. Yep. The 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 totalizing system that uh that prepares and calls forth and manifests em- embodied I mean the the, the serpent mm-hmm. embodied it puts the world in a dark order. Yeah. And comes the chaos monster that comes out of the ocean. Right? It comes out of the deep chaos. And, right and and promises to save the world, uh, and is very convincing in doing so. Yeah. And marks everyone who's conditioned by either desire for it or fear of its lack to accept it. And there, there's a re- the seven churches. There's a reason why there's this call to resistance. Yeah, like the mark. The mark is, is at, le- at least, I'm not saying it's all it is, but it's at least the participation in the economy. Oh, how about that word? Uh, the world economy, Pers- maybe? Maybe well, a form yeah. of, the, of the world economy? Yeah, so exactly. Because the economy simply means management of the house, management of the home, or the management of the relationships that you have. So, I mean, it's it's the household oiko, it's, oikos. It is, it, yeah, it's the household. It's in dealing with the household. Well, if you have a world economy, well, how are we gonna? What are the house rules? How are we gonna live in this house? And um, the the warning was, do not. Per, that was a warning. Gosh, it's a command. Do not participate. What was it? Was it to Ephesus? So you've lost your first love. Yeah. Um, and then it just gets. Well, but then, then after after the the letters to the seven churches, when it's talking about Babylon, which uh, what we ha- we have uh, Byron and I have, I think a five episode series on Babylon. Oh man! Yeah, you got to send that to me. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of which, those of you for those of you keeping score at home, you can find Deuterocanons on Spotify, on Apple Podcast, on Podbean, and maybe somewhere else. I'm I'm really not sure. At this point, but let's just say it's out there. Look for Money Part One, Money Part Two, all the way through Money Part Five. 
because ultimately it, it's all about, uh, actually, this is just going in, into more depth, kind of where we left off uh, with those conversations. But wh- where was I going? Oh, yeah. So when, when it talks about the, uh, the, the whore of Babylon, it says, come out of her, my people, and partake no longer in her debaucheries. And the Latin there is coitus interruptus. My goodness. That's vivid. That's very... Stop it. Stop. <laughs> See what you're doing? Stop. <laughs> we all see what you're doing. Quit. Uh, man, I didn't know. Uh, occasionally, the Vulgate is vulgar. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, well, that's spot on. Well, yeah. Well done, Jerome. Good job, man. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's, again, th- this brings us right back to where we started of this world system and Lewis's articulating in, I mean, it feels heavy. Mm-hmm. We read, so we, I, I don't make them read this on their own. We read this in class. It's mm-hmm. 75 pages, not long. And at 75 pages where there's not a lot of words on a page, like this could be 50, 55 pages of normal size text. Sure. And, um, we read it and we explain it, and I hope I do a decent job, which your listeners could object to. Maybe we'll see. But <laughs> we go we go over it and uh, review it and review it so that yeah. they until they don't have questions anymore and they think they basically got it. Yeah. Well, th- th- this is one of those books that I I, th- I think that sometimes fans of Lewis, people who have read Mere Christianity or who have mm-hmm. read. Narnia, or who have picked up like a, a C.S. Lewis devotional, and and they they like you know some of the paragraphs or pages or whatever that they've read. They're like, oh, you know, nice little Lewis book, or they've read Screw Tape Letter. They they pick it up, and they're like, you know, what what is this? And may, maybe they make it all the way through once, maybe they don't, not realizing that this is a book that really takes multiple reads. You know, every time that I read it, which I would say that I read the Abolition of Man somewhere between, I don't know, five, six, seven times per year. It's it's one of those books that I come back to again and again when, like, I don't know, it just, it kind of clears clears the air. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it helps me, helps me see things, uh, yeah, better, more, more clearly. And every time, man, it just, it, it floors me. It doesn't matter how many times I've, I've literally read it. I'm sure you know twenty times uh, by this point. It gets stronger too. Yeah, and and I I think that's that, of course that's not because the the text changes, but right. you know as as we continue, especially in, in our career field, you know in education, as 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 things progress in the direction of the totalizing system of the beast, we see we we, we just we, we're seeing it. Uh, manifest or we're, we're seeing the hints we're seeing we're seeing the, the the shadows of it we're seeing the shadows of that hideous strength you know as it's being constructed and when you put this what seems like it could be a message of uh despair when you put it in the context of his other works it ends up being something encouraging you know so right that especially that hideous strength because that hideous strength. I think we talked about that. And you remember the line, uh, I don't uh, where 
the direct quote he uses in Abolition of Man. Uh, yeah, it's something that uh, that Dick Devine says. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I think there's a purpose why I gave him that name. Man, he he has great names. Um, I mean, Weston, Ransom. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Divine. Yeah. Um, Divine not spelled properly because there's something off. <laughs> you know. Right. Well, and, and also yeah. it's like, you know, divine. You know, like the vine, he's he's this vine that's bearing no fruit. Oh, that too. Gosh. You know, he he's he's the fig tree. Oh, that's good. He's the fig tree that withers. Which wither is also one of the names. Yeah. There's wither and frost, frost strake, philostrato. Yeah. The f- fairy hard castle. I mean, yeah. th- like the, the imagery there is just phenomenal. Yeah, that, and he puts the absurdity of this these conditioners. Like yeah, they're really and they're they're petty, they're childish in the worst possible ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would they would kill each other easily, uh, backbiting, vindictive, of every uh, smacks of every sin that has a name. As Malcolm said of Macbeth, like they they're each of them are awful, and like you said, if, if somebody decides that maybe they don't want to be a part of it, they'll just kill them off. Easily oh sure, and, and be able yeah. to get, get by with it. <clears throat> you know, I mean that's just that's what that's what tyrants do. With their foundations, okay. We don't we don't see that anymore, do well, we? Well, the, the, those involved in the conspiracy to abolish God's creation of man have no problem abolishing particular men. Yeah, the, in Revelation, there's a line I can't remember the, the chapter. Uh, there's a particular line that says, it's "Like, why is God, why is God's wrath against these?" Against the beast and this system and those who are participating in it, it mentions the the merchants, the kings, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, again, this world economy. So, what is it? That, again, it says that they are. It says it's just so obvious that they are destroyers of nature. This is not green movement necessarily. He he, he is involved in that. He but, is coming to destroy those who destroy the earth. Yeah, I mean, this is go. This is Cain, right? The the earth cries out, and mm-hmm. in, in Paul in Romans eight, groaning for its redemption. Right. Um, so they are the destroyers of nature, and this this of course, as Lewis talks about several times in several books when he discusses what nature is, it has about tw- you know twelve layers at, at least of, of what that entails, and what that right. means. Um, just their story of human nature, of the natural world, of just creation, what God has made, what, and and Chesterton uh, talks about that too. In uh, in uh, Everlasting Man, you know, along similar lines. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's where. So essentially, Lewis is describing how what's it going to look like. How how does it begin? It begins in the classroom. It begins in education. That's how you start, and you're, you're you can't help it. There 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 are two paths. You're going to create. You're going to treat children like a poultry keeper when you have a purpose for it that you know the chicken's not aware of. You're going to take its eggs, doesn't know why, but you're mm-hmm. going to take the egg. You're going to take its fruit. You're going to take what it produces and use it for whatever is possible. And you'll feed it and give it what it needs so that you can use it. Or you're going to slaughter it and devour Force it. Force feed it a bunch of antibiotics. <laughs> right. And so, but it's not. It's not a pet. You don't treat it like a part of the family. Right. It's something to be manipulated, or you would treat you would treat the bird as uh, a mother bird treats 
its its babies. As an older bird teaches a younger bird to fly. Right. As a man transmitting manhood to men. Yeah. Because you're carrying on the tradition, you're handing on, you're passing down the tradition that was once given. And um, that's what education is about. It's one of the two. It can't be both. It's one of the two. Now, we, we could get mixed up, but the ultimate ethos is going to be one of those two. And Lewis is, that again, he, he's not saying it. But he, there, there's an either-or fallacy that's possible unless there are only two options. And these are the only two options. It's, it's for truth or it's against it or it's for something else. It's for love or it's for power. Um, so how do we get, what's it look like? What's, what's this virtue education about? Um, what are the arguments against it? And what's going to happen if we get rid of it, if we abolish it? Well, if we abolish it, we abolish humanity and there's nothing left. Right. And so, uh, the abolition of man can take a couple of different forms. Of course, it could be actual, uh, you know, a, a annihilation, you know, by some sort of technological means, um, you know, like a, immediate and violent, or the abolition could take the form of, uh, like Yuval Noah Harari is suggesting, you know, Homo Deus using technology to fundamentally alter humankind at a genetic level to, to bring about the next phase of human evolution so that homo sapiens as a species see, ceases to exist because you know th th there are those who will be chosen for that next phase of evolution and the the useless eaters who are left are just gotten rid of yeah he uh what is he said i can't remember the exact quote that he said that God has never existed, but he soon will. Right. Referring to himself, of course. And others you, like yeah. him. He's, it is. It, it's, it's uh, again, we go back to the serpent. The, that you shall, you shall be gods. That you will be, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be able to be your own God. That's what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Transhumanism. Yeah, precisely. It, gosh, isn't it, isn't it strange? And transhumanism is simply the, uh, the propagandized uh, new term for eugenics. Oh, yeah, because it became a bad word. Right. Just like propaganda was a bad word, so instead you change it to... Public relations. Public relations. And uh, Aldous Huxley's... That's the crazy thing. People think Huxley is like, man, what great science fiction. No, he knew all of these people. He was a Huxley. He, yeah. He knew this mode of thinking. His brother came up with, with transhumanism. Huxley was the... I guess the black sheep of the family or mm -hmm. maybe the white sheep of the family. Uh, I don't know, but uh, either way it's so it's like, this is, this is the exact stuff they're aiming toward. And, yeah. and Lewis was in yeah. these circles too. Uh, you know, ironically dying on the same day as Huxley. Yeah. And JFK. And JFK. That kind of overshadowed the other two. Right. Have you, have you seen the, uh, is it a short story or play or something? that uh features all three of them meeting oh, no. meeting in purgatory no yeah is it good i so i i, I haven't read it I, oh, okay. I saw it several years ago i, I didn't know if My that's goodness. something you'd be familiar with i don't no. i don't even remember the name of it but i'm sure i could find it oh, that sounds great um, i hope so i hope yeah. it's great it could also be a complete stinker right it's a good idea good idea uh 
Not sure I agree with the theology of it, but well, anyway. No, but you know. That's okay. Like, well, let's believe in purgatory. And even though it's like one of those things where I like, <clears throat> uh, with a smile on my face, disagree with him and understand. Like, well, yeah, I see where he's coming from. Sure. <laughs> what, was, what was the line he said? He said, uh, mustn't we mustn't we clean ourselves up first? Like it was more of a, like, I need to get ready for this. I, not not an earning thing, but, you know, like, I see what he's saying. I get the concept. Yeah, you know? yeah. But, um, you know, I don't agree with it. But He's smarter than me, but I don't agree with that. Yeah. Oh, exactly. <laughs> um, I just think it's funny. Like, you know Tolkien rubbed off on him on that. Oh, yeah. sure. Well, you know, Lewis, as brilliant as he was, was, I would say to his credit, enormously influenced by his friends. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was his, his capacity to like feast upon literature and sure. memorize it. And like it became a part of his thought life. Yeah. So prefer, and he could quote, he could quote like pages at a time. Yeah. Well, and so, and that, that of course was the case with his, with the Inklings, you know, yeah. this, this literary companionship, you know, he, he was, like he 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 writes in the uh, in the introduction to that hideous strength that for those who want to uh, hear more or n- learn more about Numenor and the True West would have to wait for the material that is as yet only in the manuscripts of Professor Tolkien and so he he wrote that hideous strength I want to say in maybe forty four forty five yeah. something like that and uh, Lord of the Rings or Fellowship of the Ring didn't come out until fifty three yeah yeah. Um, oh, I was going to tell you, Abolition Man, uh, there's a guy named, his father Thomas Hopko, and he is a... Hopko, like H-O-P-K-O? Yep, yep. He's He was a professor emeritus at a seminary, and one of those people, like, it's just an encyclopedic knowledge of so many things. And he said he read, he, he was talking, he went through a thing of five books that everyone needs to read, and I think he reads these five every year, and Abolition Man was on there, and he... He calls it that. There's a podcast. It's uh, not hearts and minds. Speaking the truth in love. That's okay. that his podcast. And the one on abolition man is worth listening to because he he goes through and he he describes it as a work of art. Hmm. He says because it can't be quantified or qual- even though it's an argument. He says, oh yeah, it's it's so much more than an argument. I mean, it's it's like a it's a discourse, you know. Yeah. Well, you return work of art. You can return to time and time again, and you're getting something new out of it. Not only an insight or information, but you're like you're gleaning something almost spiritual in a work of art. And he say so that is you're you're returning and getting that out of it, and uh, it's it's worth listening to. There, I can't remember. There are a couple other people talking about abolition man. They're good podcasts to. Yeah, that, that, that would be uh, good to check out supplement, because supplement with this one. Yeah. Right? Because I don't think I've ever, I've never listened to anybody talk about, uh, abolition of man. I've only had conversations about it with other people who have read it. Yeah. Like this. Yeah. And and th- this, I mean, I, I know that this uh, particular uh, evening ha- has gone on for for quite a while, but th- I would say that this is on the short end, if anything, of of conversations that that I've had about abolition of man and and the all of the, the numerous ways that it, I mean, it, it it's this template for understanding manifestations of the pattern of the world, 
And I don't think I've ever read any book of such, you might say, economic length that is so helpful in elucidating, you know, what to look for um, just around us, you know, current events, uh, understanding history, all of that, you know, through that lens. I- incredibly helpful. So I definitely would encourage anybody who's made it with us this far to uh, either pick up The Abolition of Man. Uh, I actually don't even have a copy of it right now. I've owned probably five or six or seven copies of it over the course of the last 10 years, and I've given them all away uh, to people who I hoped would read it. And that's that's left me currently without a copy. But find a copy of The Abolition of Man, uh, read it, comment that would be awesome. Share it with, share it with a friend. I would much rather you share that book with a friend than than even to share this podcast with a friend because obviously C.S. Lewis is much better. You know, going straight to the source, or you can listen to it. There, there's actually a really good version of it on YouTube, and that, that that's what I end up like. I, I, I'm so I'm so busy. It's hard for me to have time to sit down and actually open up a physical book. I end up listening to to books like that while I, while I work on the house or, you know, work around, uh, the homestead, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. It's, uh, and it just be prepared also that you may have to read it two or three times before you even feel like you have oh, a grasp yeah. of it. Yeah. And definitely. then you'll feel like you have a grasp of it and you read it again and it keeps, it, it just keeps going deeper. Yeah. It never yeah. stops. It, it, I, I've read it. Gosh. Um, I would dare say, 25 to 30 times yeah probably something around there just for by reading it in class and then on my own probably six or seven times mm-hmm. and it it every time i never really like well i have to go through it. It, it i always feel like i'm approaching something that i need to um prepare myself for mm-hmm. it's it's never just opening up a book and reading it's it's there's a heaviness and you mean like lewis in purgatory exactly <laughs> <laughs> one must clean oneself off. Before. Yeah. No, it's uh, yeah, because it, it, it's it's difficult, and that's a part of it. Just don't get bogged down. Get what you can out of it the first read or two. Um, there's great notes online. There, there are podcasts. Uh, you know, like this one. Listen this a few times. And but the, there are many helps out there available. There's a, a website where somebody took uh, some wonderful person has notes. Um, you mean the the Google Doodle. I, well, that that too. This one's like because that that one got taken down. This one's actually, Lewis, unfortunately, um, Louisiana, Louisiana, Louisiana uh, has notes on abolition of man, and it goes over all these because re- he makes so many references. He uses you know some Latin and some Greek, and it explains all of those things and gives context in case like what in the world is he talking? I don't know Latin. I can't read that. And it explains it. Uh, so Louisiana dot. NL dot NL. Yeah, I see that. ABOL quotes. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. Th- this is great. I've, I've got it pulled up uh, right now myself and I, I'd never seen uh, this particular site. Apparently it, it's out of uh, the Netherlands. Interesting. Good old Netherlands. Good job. Good job guys. Um, yeah. All right. Well, so I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, reading abolition of man again you know probably for the 24th time or something and uh getting back together soon and uh digging into it more we, we've uh 
we've got more things to talk about than than I even know how to plan. So we just have to get together and happens. and press record and 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 dive in. Yeah. See, well, this too is either a work. It's a work of art, or it's just a cluster. Um, <laughs> it's one. Of, it's one of the two. Uh, yeah, because we we talked mainly about the book, but there we there are other things that we had sort of planned that we didn't get to that we'll have right. to save that you hinted at. Right. Yeah. The th- things that things that are hinted at uh, some some uh, connections to current events. I mean, after all, we are recording this either during or right on the tail end of the uh, World Economic Forum annual meeting. And anyway, so m- more on that later. But uh, tune in next time to Deuterocanons for more about recognizing the pattern of the world as described in the scriptures and occurring all around us. Thanks for listening.